I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. You're listening to The Politics of Everything, a podcast about the intersection of culture, politics, and media. Each episode, we interview a writer about a recent story and discuss the 2020 election. Today, we're talking about the strained relationship between conservative politics and mind-expanding substances. And in the second part of the show, we're talking to Walter Shapiro, our campaign reporter, about the upcoming primary in South Carolina and the possibility of a contested convention. Welcome to this week's show. I wanted to say we're like dipping our toe into this like weird world, you know? But that's really corny. This week on the show, we're taking our shoes off and dipping our toes into the murky waters of unregulated supplements. <laughs> okay, and by unregulated supplements, we mean like vitamins, or what are we talking about? Uh, it's a whole world of things. It's vitamins. It's all sorts of things that are uh, importantly not regulated as drugs, and therefore can be sold legally to just about anyone. Really, the only legal requirement is that you can't make too many falsifiable claims about what the supplement will do. Because mm-hmm. then you invite being regulated as a drug. <laughs> right. So it just has to like not poison you and like not get your hopes up too much. I mean, it might poison you. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we are joined by internationally based writer Richard Cook, who in a recent issue of the magazine wrote a piece about the fad of nootropics, brain boosting supplements. Do they... Do they work? I don't know. (laughs) Richard is joining us from Australia right now. Richard, thank you for coming on. Hi, Alex. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you great. Can you hear me? Yeah, beautiful. What time is it for you? Um, It is 1 (laughs) a.m. Thank you for for doing this at 1 a.m. for us. Oh, wow. It's my pleasure. I'm absolutely (laughs) hopped up on nootropics, so I won't be going to sleep and... (laughs) Probably at all. (laughs) Perfect. That's what we like to hear. We like all of our guests operating on no sleep at all. (laughs) Uh, So let's listen to Joe Rogan, the host of one of the most popular podcasts in the entire world. Let's listen to him discussing his personal brand of nootropics that he uh, pitches. What I noticed when I started taking it is one of the immediate things that I noticed was that I had a better recall of words. That's the frustrating thing where you're like, what is the word? What is the word? What is the mm-hmm. word? That wasn't happening as much. And my ability to form sentences seemed smoother. It seemed like I had an extra gear, like I was one step ahead of conversations. <laughs> so that's Joe Rogan talking about Alpha Brain. His uh, personal brand of this is his pitch sort of typical of the usual pitch for these products? Yeah, absolutely. And what he's describing there is something you come across in the marketing material for nootropics all the time, which is these people describing a process that when you think about it is actually just describing thinking and talking. And sometimes they're sort of describing it as a bit of a novel experience, like thinking is not something that they're, they're used to and they're kind of getting into that gear for the first time. <laughs> So let's zoom out. Why were you interested in sort of writing about neurotropics to begin with? Like what caught your attention about them? Well, I read a lot of and consume a lot of different media and quite a bit of conservative and right-wing media. And I'm used to, you know, being sort of pitched pain pills and gold and all the other stuff, which is kind of aimed at the older consumers of conservative media. And then I suddenly started finding that I was being advertised these brain pills all the time from all kinds of different people that I didn't necessarily expect. 
And it was so common that I started to wonder, okay, what is the kind of association between brain pills and conservative politics? Like I'm not getting advertised brain pills when I'm on the TNR website, you know what I mean? (laughs) So what exactly um, are the pills meant to do? Brain pills to me makes it sound like you get some kind of IQ boost or it would actually make you more intelligent in some way. Yeah, look, they they tend to be quite careful with their claims, I think, because they're trying not to be prosecuted. Um, (laughs) But they do sort of talk about it in terms of this cognitive boost, in terms of concentration, clearer thinking, clearer articulation. And there is some evidence for that. It's just not very good. So what actually is in these supplements that they're selling? They're not selling drugs. No. Part of the reason that they are selling them as supplements is to avoid this regulation. You know, they can make claims which have a weaker evidentiary base. So not all of them have caffeine in them. Some of them do. A lot of them contain a substance called L-theanine, which is a green tea extract. It has a synergistic uh, effect with caffeine. Black pepper extract, um, B vitamins are very common. A herbal supplement called Bacopa, which has been used in Ayurvedic medicine for a long time. The other people who sell these things include like Alex Jones, who you would consider to be on the sort of far fringe element of this. But then even fairly mainstream figures like Rogan, but even Ben Shapiro. Like this is sort of all over the right, and then what you would describe as the alt-light, right? There's a company called Brickhouse Nutrition. That was the one that Ben Shapiro was advertising on behalf of. They have a, a whole bunch of conservative media partners, many of whom were doing their nootropic. They now seem to have kind of cycled to greens extract, like sort of vegetable powder. They're, they're not so into the brain pills anymore. Um, but yeah, th- this sort of cluster, this constellation is still there across um, the pre-alt-right, if you like. The ingredients all sound sort of very nice, wellnessy, kind of yoga adjacent. And yet these substances are not marketed in that sort of um, like comforting, relaxing way. Like the products you mentioned in your article are called things like Gorilla Brain (laughs) and Alpha Brain. Yes. Um, Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have sort of talked about how gendered the marketing around nootropics is. Gwyneth Paltrow's company, Goop, does sell some L-theanine extracts, sort of chewable ones under the name Nerd Alert, but that's relatively uncommon. It seems to be dudes who are into it. The sort of nootropics culture that preceded this is predominantly run and, and sort of invested in by men. I was particularly surprised or amused to see Ben Shapiro uh, endorsing one of these because uh, it seems like you might take his uh, nootropics and then force someone to debate you. Um, so how do you think that fits in with his whole brand? Ben Shapiro doesn't seem to be advertising these anymore from what I can see. He, he might do it again in the future. There were some funny moments in his live shows where he does a live read for his products and the audience cheers. I've heard that they're encouraged to cheer, but they don't seem to need very much encouragement. I think it is this culture of uh, logic destroying feminism and the the nootropics are a way to kind of accentuate the logic, if you like. <laughs> you, so for for the piece, you actually took a bunch of these products. What did they do when you took them? I took some. They didn't do a whole lot. 
the caffeinated ones, not surprisingly, did a bit more. But I didn't feel like I was, you know, destroying people with facts and logic. I, <laughs> uh, I felt like I was at my computer working at maybe 5% more efficiency than I would be ordinarily for an extra hour. It was about the same as having a cup of coffee. You use the word efficiency. You know, traditionally, what we think of sort of mind-altering substances, we think of people doing them to feel euphoric or to have a like a transcendent moment. But these are really marketed to make you more efficient, right? Like they're marketed to make you a better worker. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And this is what is kind of recurrent, not just in advertising for nootropics, but I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of picking up this kind of stuff in what used to be the wider counterculture as, as well. I would like you to elaborate on that because I, I think I know what you mean. Sort of what we are turning to these substances for has changed, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you sort of think about 1960s and 1970s culture, even 1950s culture around these sorts of psychogenic substances, people are looking for alternative realities. You know, they're looking for insight. They're looking for epiphany. And that's really changed from what I can see, even in things like van culture, where people drop out of society and try and behave in a kind of hippie adjacent way. They're all like thinking of themselves as temporarily embarrassed entrepreneurs. They're (laughs) they're all sort of thinking about getting on Instagram and and having a following and, and marketing this lifestyle rather than living it. And I think that's a really, really significant difference. So, Laura, we were talking yesterday about how this compares to the culture of Adderall, for example, which is an actual drug. It's essentially speed. But we were like, there was sort of a moment a few years ago where it was sort of hip to to like proudly be on Adderall for reasons of efficiency, right? <laughs> right. We we're trying to work out what the difference is between this nootropics culture and the Adderall culture. Uh, and one theory we came up with was that people who take, took a lot of Adderall in college were um, like trying to be have a lot of fun <laughs> during the times they weren't taking Adderall. And they were like, oh my God, there's four hours left before I have to file this paper, Adderall time. But the nootropics thing is it's not about that kind of hedonistic lifestyle, is it? No, I, I think that that's something that you, not surprisingly for conservative media, never hear referenced. Um, the, the sort of culture around Adderall and modifinil, especially in college, seems to be hedonistic, but also aimed at, you know, a culture around exams. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about specifically off-label use of Adderall. Uh, right, not actually medicinal. vaguely recreational yeah. purposes, not people who are prescribed Adderall for real things. That's right. And Adderall and modifinil are some of the most commonly off-label used substances in America, uh, especially modifinil. The number of people who are taking it to treat narcolepsy is really, really low. And the number of people who are taking it to try and ace their exams is <laughs> is surprisingly high. So I, I think the sort of distinction between that, first of all, the kind of people who take nootropics just struggle to get a hold of these substances. You know, they're not as easy to get. They don't seem to have the, the sort of contacts. Um, but also, I don't think anyone is taking off-label modifinil or Adderall on the premise that it's healthy. You know what I mean? Like they're, yeah. they're not thinking, oh, this is doing me good in the long term. They're thinking I'm, I'm burning the candle at both ends for a bit. While as with nootropics, this sort of 
supplementary element to it means that people can think of it just like a vitamin. Right, that's the distinction, because people who are taking actual drugs are doing it because they know they're altering themselves or their behavior. But the promise of nootropics is that you're becoming your more perfect self, right? Exactly, and kind of actualizing that perfect self. So I was curious, you're talking to us from Australia, but you were writing this about American conservatives. Is this an American phenomenon to you, or is it worldwide? From what I can see, it is predominantly an American phenomenon. It's it's not something that I've encountered elsewhere in the world, while as in America, I, I encountered it quite a lot. I think probably energy drinks are more a prevalent part of American culture as well, possibly because people work harder. You know, I've heard figures like the between 1999 and now, the energy drink market increased something like 5,000%. Wow. And even if you're, you know, in a gas station in America, you'll see the five-hour energy and, and energy shots and, you know, the, the size of the Starbucks that people drink is much bigger. So it's just more sort of widely caffeinated in a bunch of different ways and nootropics is just another one of them in a sense. This seems to fit into a broader political context too, which is not just that the right take nootropics, but also that America is a society without much of a social safety net particularly since the last recession, the rise of precarious work has been incredibly worrying. Is it related in some way to people having to do even more to get even less? Yeah, absolutely. There's a really sad part of it too, which is that there's a lot of people, like if we if you want to talk about the things that are healthy for your brain, like there are actual medical and physical health things you can do that involve like getting exercise and good nutrition and rest that people in America find it difficult to get those things. But then there are legitimately people who need, who, you know, have anxiety or depression or have other mental health issues. And they are turning to this because they can't actually get the things that would help them legitimately, Right. Yeah, that's right. So when I was interviewing people on Reddit, on the Reddit subcultures around nootropics, that was a surprisingly common feature of them that they were sort of investigating how to treat their own diagnosed health problems. Nootropics are not cheap. They seem to be priced around $40, $50, but that's a lot cheaper than medicine yeah. <laughs> in the United States. Yeah, that's right. And also a lot of these sites kind of encourage you to sign up like the default option when you order them isn't, you know, a 40 pack or, or a bottle of 40 pills. It's a bottle of, of like, you know, 60 pills being sent to you once a month until you cease the subscription. They're, they're sort of keen to put you on a drip and make you into a regular customer. So supplements in the United States are operated in a sort of special category where effectively no one's regulating them unless something goes wrong with them, right? Yeah, that's right. And and there are these weird things like, you know, the FDA has an upper limit for a caffeinated drink if it's called a food, but if it's called a supplement, it doesn't. And that's part <laughs> of a sort of anti-regulatory effort that was led in the 1990s to make the FDA unable to regulate substances like this. But they're, they're probably pretty harmless. You know, they're not strong enough to have adverse effects except in maybe some very rare cases. When you were talking to people who are using them, were they reporting some kind of effect or some kind of feeling? What, what were they saying to you? 
there are different kind of nootropics cultures. So there's the nootropics culture that preceded this one, and that was people coming out of movements like biohacking and places like Silicon Valley, where they had this kind of futuristic idea of an accentuated human that they could turn themselves into this kind of, you know, extra brainy person. So this is kind of like transhumanists. Exactly. People who want to live forever. Yeah. I mean, it's part of that whole culture of kind of annoying Silicon Valley people who will put like a subway car chip under their skin and then call themselves a robot. <laughs> you know, they take a bunch of different substances, most of which uh, don't do a whole lot. And then they turn them into stacks and take them in different quantities and kind of hit this sweet spot where they feel like they're a bit more productive and then they constantly tell everyone about it. Um, I, I found that people are sort of in the Reddit culture, they were much more circumspect than that. They were much more careful about their claims. You know, they weren't sort of trumpeting the evidence. They were sharing papers which were showing at best modest effects and they were sort of perplexed by this conservative arm of the nootropics movement most of the time. So then there is one other branch of it that at least we looked into a little bit, which was um, the like at the extreme, I guess, far right of this nootropics movement is uh, Infowars. Yeah. And there seemed to be a slightly different messaging in that space, which, uh, well, I think the, um, the branding on the site is actually expresses this best where it says, there is a war for your mind. Uh, and that's the way that the nootropics are being pitched on Alex Jones's website. It's saying um, the government is trying to control everyone. It fits into a kind of broader narrative that the water is full of substances that are being used to control our thoughts and so on. And that a way to assert your freedom from that and to exercise free thought and free expression is to take these drugs yeah, or supplements it, rather than not really drugs. I mean, this is something that you come across all the time in these Alex Jones areas, which is they, they kind of get the diagnosis partly right. You know, they say the government and these companies are allowing environmental contamination, but they think that any environmental protection is basically kind of effeminate. You know, <laughs> this is something which comes up in the sociology of these movements a lot, that they can't allow themselves to argue for any regulation except maybe of tech giants. And so instead, they have to kind of face down these monoliths all by themselves. And to do that, they need help and they need an antidote to the poisons. And that's why the sites are not just full of nootropics, but are, are full of iodine and colloidal silver and all these other kind of protective agents. Right. So they have a sort of critique which almost resembles reality, which is that there are powerful interests that do not care about our well-being. But, <laughs> but they have a purely individualistic answer to that. And part of that purely individualistic answer is like you have to remake your body yourself. It's kind of like the environmentalism of fools. Like <laughs> the diagnosis is right. It's just the prescription is nootropics. Right. And I guess at, at the most generous reading, if there really were a government conspiracy to control everyone's minds, um, being really hopped up on nootropics and really sharp and, and great at debating people and getting <laughs> a point of view across. No, I'm not joking. That would actually be really useful. Um, 
So I get that. Yeah. One thing I'm curious about is where did this start? So why did it take off? In your piece, you write about a CBS show called, or it's a movie? It was a, it was a book and then a movie and then a show. And I yeah. think the differences between the three forms of it is limitless is what we're talking about. Okay. I haven't seen this. Alex has. Yeah. But <laughs> I never read the book, but I think you, because you write about the differences. This is, it's, they're fascinating how it changed in the adaptation. So I'll summarize it very quickly. It is about a deadbeat writer who is given a pill by... Uh, a sort of acquaintance of his and it turns him into a genius and gives him all this energy and drive and productivity. And he's then sort of drawn into a web of intrigue, which he then gets out of. And what is so fascinating about the difference between the book and the movie, the, the book is called The Dark Fields and it takes its name from The Great Gatsby. And even the title is about kind of wasted promise. You know, it's it's about this Faustian bargain where a guy sells his soul and the devil comes to collect. And in Limitless, the devil never arrives. Like it's a cautionary <laughs> tale where they just remove the cautionary element completely to the extent where I'll, I'll try and avoid the spoiler. But in oh, both- Go ahead and do the spoiler. <laughs> Yeah, you can totally just tell us what happens. <laughs> yeah, I'm spoiling Limitless. There are worse People crimes. People can stop listening now if they really want to not know what happens. Yeah. In both of them, the character, while he's hopped up on this brain pill, um, murders a woman. You know, he murders an innocent woman. And that's retained in the movie and then just kind of forgotten about. He's just an unrepentant murderer. <laughs> The hero of the movie is just such a bizarre dynamic and it really kind of speaks to this kind of promise of unlimited mindset, you know. It's like just bought the infomercial wholesale in a way that the book really didn't. At the end, it's not like, um, my God, what have I done to myself? At the end, it's like, I'm the most powerful, like I have the most powerful brain on the planet and it rules. Yeah, completely. <laughs> and... and um, he is sort of saying, oh, I don't even need to take the drug anymore because it has permanently made me into a genius. <laughs> and it's really amazing. Like this, this was sort of coming out right on the cusp of things like pickup artist culture and, and the facts and logic culture. And, and it really <laughs> has all of those things in embryo. You know, straight away he sort of becomes a douchebag and starts – picking up women and, and, you know, speaking to them in other languages, all the kinds of things which are talked about in places like the game. And in both the book, the movie and the show, he just dumps being a creative person in like the first act. <laughs> he just solves it, you know. I mean, that actually is smart. He was like, okay, writing, definitely not a good move. Yeah. If I want to be a Nietzsche and Superman, yeah. I'm going to have to come up with a way better career than this. I mean, he just, what happens is he finishes his book in a weekend and that's just like finishing that level of the video game and the next level is going to work in finance. <laughs> oh, man. In, in the show, he's a deadbeat musician. He becomes an amazing guitarist and then instead of releasing a hit album or whatever, uh, he basically goes and becomes a cop. So... <laughs> You know, it, it's this real attitude of like creating things is for losers and the moment that you can see above that, you realize that finance is the true creativity. 
And so that brings us to another point, which is hierarchy is very important, both in the movie and in this culture more generally, right? Like one thing it strikes me that it has in common with the game is there's a secret set of rules. And if you're one of the people who's smart enough to work out what they are, you can manipulate everyone else's reality and triumph. But it's not this utopian inclusive thing where it's like, oh, if only everyone realized that like these are the secret set of rules, right. everyone not, could have not, an amazing life. We want everyone life to reach and, their potential. It's, and we would have this fantastic egalitarian society yeah. where everyone's fulfilled. It seems to be like, you know, a few of us have figured this out and can rise to the top. I mean, there, there is a nootropic called unfair advantage. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> And so it's completely like, there's no shame around this, right? It's like, I want to climb that ladder and be above other people. It's not, I want to be good. It's like, I want to be better than other people. Yes. And I mean, there's a lot of emphasis in this political culture on IQ and on masculinity, on testosterone. You know, these are the, the kind of recurrent conversational tropes of younger right-wing politics on the internet and what nootropics provide you know alan glenn calls it this in limitless he he says it's viagra for the mind (laughs) it's just such a pure kind of marriage of these two concepts of iq and testosterone both of which are your opportunity to lord it over other people yeah there's not a lot of like subtext in that description (laughs) (laughs) the weird thing is no there really isn't both testosterone and viagra if you know ingested in some way have real effects and actually do change the body whereas green tea extract (laughs) is not so much right (laughs) so it's this kind of weird symbol for those things I think of it in this long tradition of sort of right-wing snake oil which is Maybe this is a little bit more realistic than some of the other sort of investment scams and things like that. But what I find interesting about it is that in that the the long right-wing tradition of building an audience to sell them things traditionally targeted what we pejoratively think of as gullible old people. Yeah. But this is definitely for young people who consider themselves like quite savvy. Definitely. I also think that in a sense like thinking about nootropics, maybe not buying them, but being open to buying them is rational in a hyper-competitive economy. You know, some of the companies that sell them really put it in the terms of everything is competition, whether you like it or not. And and that is a neoliberal phenomenon that they're not responsible for. They might enjoy it more than other people and more than they should, but you know, they didn't create it. And in some ways, nootropics and nootropics culture are a rational response to that. Well, it's interesting too that it's popular among young people because some of the things we know about young people is that their standard of living is lower than their parents, that it's harder for them to secure housing, it's harder to find work. And so if you're on the left, you might have an analysis of this that has to do with inequality. <laughs> you might have a structural analysis on the left, right. Yeah, <laughs> and um, if you're on the right and you've already got an analysis of society, which is it's about individuals and competition, and your only recourse is to try and just be one of the more competitive individuals. Absolutely. I mean, beyond the structural analysis of, of blaming feminists and the liberal media if you're a failure and a conservative, 
you can only blame yourself. And then it becomes a narrative of self-responsibility to lift yourself up out of that. Yeah, that's true. Because you can only you can't necessarily blame feminism if like you're in debt. <laughs> like you have to, yeah. you have to come up with like some other explanation. <laughs> yeah, I mean you can try, and and people find all kinds of ways to do it. But what you ultimately have to do is is think that it's up to you. What is so unique about this is that I can't think of other examples of an ideology that comes with a kind of like substance use habit. Like we couldn't think of something, like a supplement you could take that would prove that you were a socialist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe Prozac, but... Um, <laughs> I think that is uh, bipartisan. <laughs> yeah, there's, I mean, there's even when you go back to George Orwell, he's talking about, you know, socialists wearing sandals and drinking juice, you know, these cliches have been there for a long time. And there's definitely, if someone, say, for example, is vegan or vegetarian, you will anticipate that they will have some left-wing beliefs. It's not always true, but it's often true. And in some ways, you know, Jordan Peterson's I'm going to sit down and eat all of the meat <laughs> is, is a, a, a kind of way of owning the libs all by itself, that this, this is their forbidden... <laughs> object that I'm going to touch, you know, it's real sort of taboo level stuff. There's like a sort of liberal version of wellness culture, which is really just about, you know, harmony and, and health. And then, but it's extremely fascinating to see that interact with like masculinity and hierarchy on the right, where it's like wellness is not about your being well, wellness is about your being better than someone. And like, debatable or not, but it is the case that all the Nazis were on amphetamines. Like, <laughs> we basically know yes. that, right? <laughs> yeah, completely. And I mean, you, you could, if you wanted to, sort of write a history of the 20th century in which each era is broken up by the predominant substance. And <laughs> yeah. in this kind of 40s and 50s period, it is absolutely amphetamines. You know, I write in the piece about how commonly available Benzedrine was after the Second World War. And it was, you know, being sold on Pan Am flights alongside cocktails, <laughs> you know, on the menu. Like, would you like a Benzedrine inhaler with that? <laughs> and it's, it's a really important driver of, of especially literary culture and, and people like Ayn Rand in this period. It is fascinating because Benzedrine will actually like affect you quite a lot, your brain. And then yeah. to, and then to be now at a point where basically green tea extract and a little bit of caffeine <laughs> <laughs> is being sold as something that will like completely change the way your mind works. It, it, it seems like, a, like quite a shift. Yeah. Um, well, I guess partly the shift is because people now know what happens if you take loads of Benzedrine over a short <laughs> period of time. Um, you know, they're not all success stories like Ayn Rand. A lot of people really struggle with amphetamine psychosis and things like that. Like, again, that's the funny thing, too, is we're talking about people who created art, like who are using this to be efficient in the service of creating art, creating novels, uh, writing novels, writing poetry, or, or doing other things. And now it's like, I don't even know what we're supposed to be efficient in the service of when we're taking our brain supplements now. Like, day trading? I mean, I'm not even really sure. With the sort of amphetamines culture around that time, nobody thinks it's good for them. 
You know what I mean? Nobody, <laughs> nobody sorts of thinks, uh, I've become a genius because I'm taking this. They realize that it's a trade-off and they often find the experience of it sort of quite unpleasant, you know, that they are working that hard at, at that extremity. The difference, I think, in the, the nootropics culture that follows it is this idea that if you experience resistance to doing this quantity of work or this type of work, especially not your own work, but at your job, there is something wrong with you and you need to fix it. And to find the antecedent to that, you almost have to go back to futurism, this idea that you are a cog in a machine and you have to become the shape of the cog to be your best self. Thank you so much. That was, uh, I think that was pretty good. Yes, thank you, Richard. I don't think I'm going to be... um ordering any of these myself. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for trying it so that I don't have to. Yeah. (laughs) I would say it's my pleasure, but it might not be true. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Try and get some sleep. Yeah, exactly. Go to bed. So today we are checking in with Walter Shapiro, staff writer at The New Republic. We are phoning him. He's out on the campaign trail following the 2020 candidates. Hello, Walter. Hi, Walter. Oh, hello. Welcome from Charleston, South Carolina, which, let me tell you, is so much a better campaign than Des Moines. (laughs) (laughs) How so exactly? Uh, Minor details like food. Hotels, (laughs) Hotels, <laughs> weather, uh, the, the important stuff of politics for those people like me who've been on the road forever. Shockingly, the weather is better in, in South Carolina than in Iowa. <laughs> Shockingly enough, I did not have to buy a special pair of snow boots like I did in Mason City, Iowa, about four weeks ago. <laughs> and it is amazing to me that there is food on the menus. <laughs> in South Carolina, that is not red meat. Uh, do, and you mean actual red meat, not rhetoric, right? No, we're not talking about rhetoric. <laughs> uh, who cares about politics? <laughs> so um, you just got here last night. We are talking to you before the debate tomorrow uh, and before, of course, the primary on Saturday. After South Carolina, everything is going to change. Well, what's going to happen is as of Saturday, Individual voters will cease to matter. It's like the entire world is like California. The only reason why any candidate will ever talk to a voter is to be televised doing it. The fact is that everything becomes a backdrop because there's too much ground to cover. And where in New Hampshire and Iowa, 20% maybe of the voters had seen a candidate. In Texas, it'll be 0.00001. And and therefore, every single campaign event, I've seen this before, it becomes the flyover campaign. Um, My favorite example of the flyover campaign was way back in 1988 when I was traveling with Bob Dole, who was challenging the first George Bush for the nomination. And he arrives in Oklahoma as part of a flyover And he gives a press conference at the airport with his plane visible out the side. (laughs) And the first question from a local blow-dry TV anchor was, 
Senator Dole, what do you think of Oklahoma? (laughs) (laughs) And how do things change for people like you who are following the candidates around? Well, first of all, and this is going to come as a stunning shock uh, to anyone listening. The New Republic does not have the same resources as, say, NBC or ABC News. <laughs> Therefore, traveling with a candidate will cost between five and $10,000 per week for every seat on the plane. And what that means is that for people like me, we get off the plane entirely because the rewards are not worth the prodigious network-only costs. And my travel from here will be going to places and doing what the candidates aren't doing, which is actually talking to voters. That's how I'm going to cover it. And by the way, one of the craziest things the Democrats have come up with through inaction is to let 14 states vote on March 3rd. So this is Super Tuesday. Um, Can you just take us through what's different this year than it was four years ago? More states are involved. Both California and Texas, the two largest states, are voting on the same day. Uh, 14 states in total. I think it's about 35 percent of the delegates to the convention. And remember, vote counting gets very, very tricky. We may be counting the votes in California into April. That oh, God, problem... I really hope we're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, let me I know, explain. I know. I mean, California has vote by mail. As long as it's postmarked by primary day, it counts. Since roughly 75% of the delegates in every state are elected by congressional district. And if a candidate doesn't clear 15%, that candidate gets no delegates and their votes disappear from the calculus. There'll be a lot of districts where, say, a Pete Buttigieg might be at 14.8% or 15.3%, depending on what the mail brought in on March 23rd. <laughs> and that will depend on whether he gets a one delegate or the extra delegate goes to, I don't know, Biden, Bloomberg, Sanders. And therefore, all of these delegate counts are going to be subject to radical changes. And, oh, it is as slow as Freudian analysis as far as counting the votes are concerned <laughs> because the Democrats have that 15% ceiling. And with so many candidates hovering around that number to be viable, every congressional district could be up in the air um, until the final votes come in. I have to say, I think you would agree, this is a crazy way to pick a nominee. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There was a while where the old Will Rogers line, I'm not a member of any organized political party, I'm a Democrat, <laughs> became a cliche. But boy, has it come back with vengeance. So how did we end up at this process? Like, how did we end up coming to this crazy makeshift way of picking a nominee? Ah, oh, luckily, sitting in my hotel room, I have the definitive text, which I have more or less memorized by my friend Elaine Kmark from the Brookings Institution. Primary politics, the history of Democratic Party rules. And every single rule was designed to solve a problem from last time. (laughs) And every single Democratic Party rule created a problem for next time. (laughs) Democrats used to have winner-take-all primaries, but Democrats hated the idea of being a robot delegate 
forced to vote for the candidate who had taken their state uh, if, say, you're a senator from California. So we went to proportional representation while the Republicans still have winner-take-all primaries. Then there was a fear of too many votes being dribbled out to minor candidates. So they set the 15% threshold. All of this makes everything complicated. The Democratic Party rules would make Finnegan's Wake look like something easy to read. (laughs) And what it does is while it makes it very hard for a trailing candidate to catch up in number of delegates once somebody gets ahead, it also makes it very hard for anyone to get to 50% in a multi-candidate race before the convention, which is why talk of a contested convention is back. (laughs) And as somebody who has been dreaming of this all my life, I feel like I'm Captain Ahab and a whale has been just sighted. So why has this been something you've been dreaming of? Is it purely from a journalistic perspective that this would just be a wonderful advantage? You don't think this is good for politics? This isn't like, oh, our our republic could be strengthened by having this. Well, Well, a wonderful question, both. Number one, it would be the greatest reality (laughs) TV show of our lifetime, even better than The Apprentice. I mean, I thought we've been living in a reality TV show and it hasn't been going great. This could be a good one. There'll be a happy ending. There'll Mm. be somebody bathed in confetti on the stage (laughs) at the Milwaukee convention. What could be better than that? The other thing is that when conventions pick nominees, they did a pretty good job. Uh, People like Franklin Roosevelt, people like John Kennedy, those were not bad selections. And the third thing is that if you have a convention picking a nominee, you will have many people with a vested interest in the Democratic Party who worry about electability making a decision. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think people who run on the same ticket as the presidential nominee should have a little more say than someone who decided that morning that they'll vote in a Democratic primary. I guess the thing that I find confusing about that, though, is why have all these registered Democrats show up to vote for who they want over months and months and months only in order to have people overrule them? Because it only happens if the people who vote haven't made a clear decision. What would a contested convention look like? Like, people talk about it, and journalists love to fantasize about it, but what what would actually happen? We don't know. I mean, this (laughs) is what's so wonderful. My friend Jeff Greenfield once thought about writing a novel about a contested convention in which they discover that everybody who knows what to do is now dead. (laughs) I mean, this is a political skill that everybody in politics had, say, in 1956. It's like knowing how to crank a Model T Ford. Somewhere along the way, everyone who has done it is no longer capable of doing it. And for everyone else, it's out of their life experience. Also, prior conventions had political bosses. Right now, we have no bosses, which is to some extent why everything is so up in the air. But it will be a fascinating thing to watch, and nobody knows how it would play out. Well, on that note, Walter, thank you so much for talking to us, and we will check in again really soon. Yeah, thank you, Walter. Okay, now gossip your heads off. (laughs) We will, we absolutely (laughs) will. See you soon. (laughs) Thanks, I'm glad it worked. 